0: I'm Leonard Lopate. Tim Robbins is an Oscar winning actor, writer, director, and activist, the star of films like The Shawshank Redemption, The Player, and Bill Durham, the writer and director of Dead Man Walking, Cradle of Rock, and Bob Roberts. He's also the founding artistic director of the Actors Gang Theater Company in Los Angeles, and their latest project. We Live On is a virtual enactment of Studs Terkel's 1970 book, Hard Times, An Oral History of the Great Depression in America. The play is performed in three parts and is available to view through the Actors Gang website Uh, now through September 4th, and I'm very pleased that it brings Tim Robbins back to our show. Welcome back. Tim, are you there?
1: Oh, 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 there we are. Hi.
0: Well, Tim, welcome back to our show. Okay, I got it, Lauren. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Um, right. This last year and a half has been a tough time for theater and film artists. How have you and your company dealt with the inability to present live theater?
1: Oh, well, yes, it's been very difficult. Um, when, it, when the lockdown hit, we... Um, Uh, started to adapt. We started to adapt our um, education programs, our prison projects to a virtual uh, platform. And um, I guess the most frustrating thing uh, was that we couldn't gather in a room together to create. So we started uh, working on on Zoom and we soon realized it was impossible to do theater as we know it. Uh, We couldn't do really scenes with each other because the, First of all, the timing was off and mm. the idea that you're in separate rooms uh, trying to make an audience assume that you're in the same room. So it was, it was quite difficult. And so we started working in the monologue form, uh, directly addressing that little green dot uh, in our computers as the, our audience, uh, trying to adapt to a very personal and intimate relationship with the, uh, the person that was out there. Um, And we started working in a monologue form, and and as source material, I had always been curious about working on Studs Terkel's work. Uh, He's someone I've admired for quite a long time, and the voice in his books is an essential voice, an American voice that's seldom heard. And so we started uh, working on Hard Times, his uh, oral history of the Depression, with the knowledge that uh, this would be uh, these tales, these stories of survival would be relevant and necessary by the time that we were performing them.
0: Well, the last time we spoke, Donald Trump was still president and you were doing an absurdist audio play called Bobo Supreme, which reflected the craziness of the time. Has the change in administration changed the type of work that you wanna do as a theater artist? Because this new play has a a completely different, very realistic tone.
1: Well, the times have changed, obviously. we're we're in a situation right now that is unique to the human history uh, uh i can't think of another time uh maybe the spanish flu uh mm-hmm. early part of the 20th century where it was forbidden to assemble um and we talked a lot about that about uh what uh that means and so in a reflection of that time and in a time where we knew that what was missing was intimate contact, what was, what was, was missing was, um, storytelling in an intimate way. Uh, and knowing that people, their usual relationship with theater had to do with that intimacy. We felt that that was the necessary road to take. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a, a change in administration, though. I think it's more the change that's happened because of COVID and mm-hmm. because of the uh, the restrictions that are under place that are not allowing us to assemble in a room together. And of course, this whole workshop process started during Trump.
0: Now, Hard Times was first published in 1970, so it's now over 50 years old. Do you think that it's as relevant now as when it first came out? Do some of these stories of people being out of work or waiting in lines for food resonate with us even more now because of the pandemic?
1: I think they resonate more. Yeah. I think that uh, when we started reading through these uh, accounts, first-person accounts uh we were immediately struck with how relevant they were. They could have been said yesterday. Hmm. And um, uh, I think we kind of knew that as we continued to work on it. We knew that we had something that was going to resonate. And I want to stress, too, that part of the reason we wanted to work on this wasn't because of the similarities necessarily to the depression, which are there, but to the similarities in what we felt was going to be necessary to survive uh, All of the voices in hard times Are survivors They're people that made it through A very, very difficult time And I felt it was really important To accentuate the uh, Positive of this The the idea that If we could tell the story about Men and women that Survived a very difficult time We might provide a useful Service to our audiences today
0: Well, as We said earlier, the Terkel book uh, includes dozens of stories of people from all walks of life, businessmen, farmers, hobos, factory workers. Uh, Do we know how he chose the people he interviewed? Was he trying to capture a cross-section of the the country, both geographically and socially?
1: Yes, I I think he always did that. I, I think he had great respect for the unheard voice in America, the anonymous, the people whose stories aren't told. Of course, in his radio show in Chicago, he would interview actors and musicians, but he also had a a very strong drive to tell other stories, tell stories of the the bartender and tell stories of the cocktail waitress and the burlesque dancer and the person that works in the factory. Uh, This is what I think sets apart Studs Terkel as, as uh, a very important uh, chronicler of uh, American history. Uh, he, he, like uh, Howard Zinn, understands that there's more to history than simply the official account. There's a great value in this, the stories of the common man and woman that, that were living through these times. You ever meet him? I did, yes. I had the great honor of interviewing him. Uh, Paul Holdengrabber uh, who approached me and asked me if I wanted to interview the greatest interviewer <laughs> of all time.
0: Intimidating. And
1: I uh, was young and I guess, uh, you know, confident and uh, <laughs> did my research. I had already read a couple of his books and we sat down for uh, a, a really nice interview. That's actually in the Pacifica archives. Uh, we did it at uh, LA, LA County Museum of Art in 1991, maybe?
0: I don't know. I guess so. <laughs> we'll have to look it up.
1: <laughs> Somewhere in the early 90s, yeah. let's say.
0: And he was, he obviously, uh, do you think that great interviewers are also great interviewees because they understand the process?
1: Well, certainly, um, if I was, if that was what I did, um, I would certainly relish the opportunity to talk about myself for a change. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you can do it now, anytime you want. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, how do you feel about that being a great interviewer?
0: Well, thank you for calling me a great interviewer. Uh, I, uh... I have a certain philosophy of interviews, so when people interview differently, when they make all these statements and then expect you to say yes, that's absolutely right, uh, I kind of cringe.
1: Oh yeah, me too. That's that's really not interviewing, is it? It's more opinion making. Um, it's no, more cable television.
0: To,
1: <laughs> well, I, it's, it's I've I've used my access to interview some very interesting people in my life. I've I've interviewed. Um, Johnny Cash when he was alive, and uh, Harry Belafonte, and um, I was able to uh, sit down with Studs, and uh, it it is a uh, it's a daunting uh, task. It's something that um, I, I am humbled by because it, you really do have to do your research. You really do need to think in a different yeah. way, and I'm usually uh, on the other side, so I, I give great respect uh, to people that. Uh, can conduct an interview that really is unexpected and and can go into different directions. I guess one of the greatest compliments I ever got was after I interviewed Johnny Cash, his son, John was there and he said, you know, I've never heard my father talk about some of that stuff. Hmm. And, and that's, you know, what an honor, you know, to be able to be in in the presence of such greatness and be able to, uh, tell uh, get him to tell stories he hadn't told
0: before. Now, you have 30 stories in this new work, presented in three parts. How did you choose which stories you wanted to include? Did you, your group read the book together and decide which ones uh, that they preferred? Or did the actors get to choose a character that appealed to them?
1: combination of both. Um, I we sat down and started to read through them and not with any idea of casting, but just to hear them out loud. And people gravitated towards the ones that resonated most with them. And then I asked um, um, eight of the members of the company to, in the spirit of Studs Terkel, go and interview their relatives, their grandparents or, uh, or great-grandparents that were still alive, and to see if they could get stories of the depression from them and there's eight beautiful uh, uh, pieces in the in the in, in, in we live on that really resonated in a much more personal way because it means so much more to the actor um, there's some uh, you know stories that we wouldn't have expected to hear that that came
0: out things that they had known re- before about their relatives.
1: Yes. And and it was something that I encouraged all of my actors to do during this period. You know, remember, uh, you know, it's very isolating, still is to some degree. And I wanted, you know, in a way, I wanted everyone and I encouraged everyone to reach out to not only family members, to, but to people that you haven't talked to for a while or people that you might have had disagreements with in the past to re-up those relationships at this time. And. Uh, it was very uh, helpful to a, a lot of the company to, to kind of take that challenge. And it, it doesn't take much. And, you know, by the way, to all your listeners, I would encourage it. It, 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 is a, it is a time to reach out. It's not a time to divide right now. And if there's someone that you've fallen out with or that you've been wondering about how they're doing and you might have had a disagreement about one thing or another, and there's been so many disagreements in the past five years, I'd encourage them to, to just make the phone call. You'd, you'd be surprised what might happen.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Tim Robbins, whose latest project is We Live On, which is available in three parts on the Actors Gang website, which is, uh, what, the Actorsgang.com? Yes. Now, the, uh, the you have some really interesting people. The uh, the book and your play uh, includes some well-known names like Langston Hughes, Dolores Huertas, Cesar Chavez, and, and Dorothy Day. Did they all become activists because of their experiences during the Depression?
1: Yes, all of them did. Um, all of them had direct experiences that were profoundly... Uh, Life-changing for them. Uh, both Dolores and C- C- Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, uh, were witness to great poverty that was uh, happening in in the West, in in, in agricultural fields at the time. Mm. And uh, Dorothy Day witnessed the uh, evictions, the, the furniture on the sidewalk in Lower East Side in, in Manhattan, in New York. Uh, Yes, profound uh, Experiences that really Changed the way they looked at Life
0: You had a a talk back with Dolores Huerta as a guest after a recent Performance, is she still active In the labor movement?
1: Oh yes she is and she is a force Of nature, my goodness And her birthday is coming up I think in a couple Days, Uh, might want to send out Good wishes To her, she's uh, still a force Of nature, still a uh, still, still organizing, still advocating for workers and migrants, and and uh, you know it's it's it was a really um, beautiful uh, experience to be able to sit with her and talk after the show.
0: She must be in her late nineties. Yeah, I believe she's mid nineties. Yeah, uh-huh. ninety-two. The uh, you, you, my engineer tells me she's ninety-two. Uh,
1: the book. All right, so we're both wrong. <laughs> well, close enough.
0: <laughs> the book and the play include a lot of people we probably haven't heard of before, like Dynamite Garland. Who was she and why did you want to tell her story beside the fact that she has a wonderful name?
1: Oh, wow. Um, yes, uh, she alludes to being a strip dancer, but there's no, she doesn't really elaborate. But hers is a story of optimism, a story of. of You know, growing up with absolutely nothing, even though having been raised by a a mother with uh, some pretenses of wealth, but found a way to survive. Her father used to jump onto. they used to live by a train yard and the father used to jump up by a pass on passing trains and throw coal down to the kids so that they could put Hmm. it in their little coal stove that they were living in this little shack to stay warm at night. Um, She talks about. Uh, you know, be going to Catholic school and uh, one uh, and uh, their their entertainment, their recreation on Sundays was always to go out in their Model A Ford and look for houses, even though they couldn't afford them. They would take tours of empty houses and imagine where they would put this or that. And the mother would say, here's where we're going to keep the potatoes. And the dynamite would say, this is where I'm going to keep my horse out in the barn. And it was just this wonderful little fantasy that they, they went through every weekend to, to boy up their optimism, even though they had nothing and couldn't afford the rent or the purchase price on these houses, still dreamed of what could happen. And I found this story to be true of many of, of the people, this idea of, of hope and hope as a driver uh, to survive. and And this idea that even though we're down with some community, with some help, with some empathy, with some understanding, we can survive this. I think this is sorely missing right now. And, and it's one of the reasons I wanted to do this piece was because it's a great reminder that in times like this, we need collectivity, we need community, we need to find uh, bridges and not build walls. And and there's so much division, and so much division being encouraged from both left and right. And, And I think the social media is really accelerating this, and it's a very dangerous thing for our society. We really have to stop condemning and start having more compassion and empathy for other points of view.
0: Dynamite Garland describes her family as lace curtain Irish. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase before.
1: Oh, man, there's so much language in this that I've never heard before either. It's coming out of the, uh, you know, the verite of of real people speaking their truth. Um, There's you know, there's the the um, the claims inspector, the uh, basically the repo man who 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 used whose job it was in this terrible time to repossess uh, things from poor people and, and tells his story and. You know, you want to have compassion, but, you know, and and you do a little bit, but it's the rationalization. It's the justification he has to give himself in order to keep doing that job. Uh, It's that's what I love uh, about this book. And it's the complexities. It's 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 never it's never black and white. There's you know, we can make it simplistic. We can make it binary. But. There's all these gray areas that that real life exists in, and and that's where I think great drama exists as well. Great pieces of storytelling exist in in the ambiguity and in, in the contradictions and in in the gray zone that doesn't isn't really right or wrong or black or white or uh, you know uh, Republican or Democrat. It's all it's this other thing. It's this humanity that exists that really drives all of us and and uh, you know and, and in times like this and in times like the depression it, they they weren't going to survive with division they it was it was it was a tough time but they had to find ways to have empathy and compassion for each other and guess what they figured it out and they, they found, found out how to help other people even when they didn't have anything one of the characters uh, a school teacher in Chicago talks about uh, this idea of of, you know, even when they were poor, that they were still donating to other people that didn't have as much as them. And if you think about that, just that alone, that's a spirit that is essential right now. When, When we, you know, it seems like at the early start of this crisis, It was all about hoarding, you know, it was all about going and emptying the shelves. And for some reason, toilet paper was the Mm -hmm. most important thing to possess. And all of a sudden no one had any toilet paper and, you know, canned beans and whatever. It was it was it was uh, it was like as if we were about to be hit by a hurricane and everyone was stocking up. And I often wonder about what's happened to all that canned food. You know, Mm -hmm. what's happened to all those. Uh, uh, bags of rice that went uncooked. Think about the absolute waste that must have happened.
0: On the other hand, the toilet paper will be used eventually. Eventually, Uh, (laughs) yes. Now that repo man you talked about was Harry Hartman. Uh, He worked as a custodian to the county bailiff. uh, And his job was to repossess furniture and cars that people couldn't pay for?
1: Yes. And um, it was and he talks about how, you know, he was the unwitting uh, policeman of uh, basically a scam that was happening. These people actually owned these couches and dining room tables. But what would happen was the furniture store, you know, once they had their bedroom set and their dining room set, they'd want to radio and a cabinet radio and they'd go in and well we want a cabinet radio now and the salesman rather than closing out the bill just put it on the bill that already existed so that when they couldn't pay for the cabinet radio after the depression hit guess what everything was repossessed even though they had paid for these things that was part of a you know a kind of a rolling scam that a lot of s- stores did at the time and he he talks about it, how, you know, how difficult that was. And think about how much that must prey on someone, you know, how difficult it is to be in a room where a family is despondent. Children are crying. The, the, the father is, you know, full of shame. The mother, they, he says, the mother, it was usually the mother that was the most outraged and the one that was holding it together the most, um, and this is playing itself out, you know, in our country right now. It's uh, this is one of the things that is deeply concerning for me. Is that in the narrative right now, these stories aren't being told. Uh, there are still people wanting. There are still people on food lines. There are still people—a growing, growing amount of people—that are homeless. That uh, are being I
0: see many homeless people in New York these days. People just sitting out in the street.
1: You bet. And uh, I've, I've been in Los Angeles recently, and it's gotten so much worse than it was a year and a half ago. Uh, it's almost, uh, you know, uh, it uh, seems like almost every 10 blocks there is some kind of tent encampment. Uh, the, there's And, that, and now I, s- I saw pictures of people on Venice Beach being evicted and, and you know, police coming in with semi-automatics wow. to evict people in tents I mean what kind of country are we living in? it's 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 crazy and my problem with this is is that this is happening but why isn't it being reported why aren't these stories being told um, this is important and it's something that we should open our eyes to but unfortunately we're being kept away from this story where this doesn't seem important enough well, to be we don't have enough.
0: Studs Terkel doing this anymore uh, getting back to Harry Hartman, the uh, the repo man, the custodian, the, of the county bailiff, he talks about being threatened with rifles, but also about trying to show compassion, and he would leave families uh, beds and other necessities. So although it wasn't an easy one, he wasn't he lucky to have a job.
1: Well, that's he says that. Listen, it was a lucrative job. I had to pay my rent, you know. So what else could I do? Um, he he talks about. Um, at least leaving them beds. And what he would tell the stores was that the beds had been overridden by cockroaches and you don't uh-huh. want it back.
0: Yeah, bed bugs.
1: He'd lie, you know, in order to, so that they would have a place to sleep. Um, although, you know, he could also have said no. At some point, you know, one of the stories that we don't tell, and I would love to tell in a future iteration of this, when they were trying to repossess farms in the Midwest, there was outright rebellion i mean there were people there were farmers ge- gathering together uh forming little militias that when these repo men came in they would they would shoot at them it got it got crazy and um you know they were not these farmers were not going to allow their land to be taken away um this kind of thing uh i don't know if that's happening right now um i wouldn't be surprised if if this continues to go downward, that it does happen. I think we've been very wise in a lot of ways in, in providing a relief money for businesses, uh, uh, even though I have noticed a large amount of small businesses have gone under. Uh, and we all have also noticed that these very large businesses have made billions and billions of dollars. And that's another story that Studs tells in, in the book uh, Hard Times And that we tell in uh, We Live On Is a lot of people got rich During the Depression A lot of people didn't It was like water off a duck's back It was it wasn't uh, it didn't really affect them much and Happening fact, today as ways, well Yeah, exactly Found ways to actually You know, benefit off of the crisis
0: You're listening to London Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and stream me live at WBAI.org The crops are all in, the peaches are ruddy, the oranges are piled in their so dumps, they're flying. Back with Tim Robbins, whose latest project is We Live On, uh, available on three parts through the Actors Gang website, uh, theactorsgang.com. And we just heard a song that is included in, uh, in, in the show, uh, Departee. Now, um, there's a scene about the immigrant farm workers who died in, in a plane crash in Los Gatos Canyon in 1948 that was immortalized by that song by Woody Guthrie uh, with the refrain, you won't have a name when you ride the big airplane, all they will call you will be deportee. So what's the story behind that? Is that, uh, is that also reflected in the latest attitude toward immigrants, do you think?
1: Uh, yes, that was actually one of the eight original pieces that was written by a woman uh, named Stephanie Galindo. <clears throat> she um, was uh, sh- she wanted to write about the uh, situation that's happening right now in ICE detention centers, and uh, did some research and found out there were uh, millions of deportations of actual U.S. citizens during the Depression that were mexican and uh that was and i then uh i told her about this song that woody guthrie wrote and so she incorporated into her piece and we play it uh at the end uh there's music at the beginning and the middle and end of each piece uh there's quite a few woody songs in there uh we do hard uh Hard Traveling and uh, Deportee and uh, Union Made. Hobo's um, Lullaby? Also, uh, sorry, uh, Hobo's Lullaby isn't actually a woody song, but he did sing it. Uh, and um, and a couple other songs from the time, The Panic is On, is great rhythm and blues song, um, uh, Bread and Roses, uh, a song that was written later but really reflects the time very well. Um yeah, it, it, this piece is important. Uh, I think this uh, resonates through all three parts. The uh, the story of uh, the Los Gatos Canyon, the story of Dolores Huerta, the, the story of Cesar Chavez. It, right. By the way, each there are three parts, but each one is independent. So you can hear part two first, and it, it's not dependent upon hearing. Uh, first, the first part, uh, each part is independent of each other.
0: Well, one of your actors reads the full names of the workers who died in that crash. How did you find those names? Were
1: they- uh, a man named Timsey Hernandez uh, did the research and found out, did a deep dive. Uh, you know, they were buried in a mass grave. And uh, Stephanie talks about the flight attendants. Uh, you In the paper, they listed their names and then mentioned that there were a whole bunch of these other people that died. And that's why Woody wrote that song. He, he felt, well, uh, what the hell? You know, how dare they? These people are human beings and they have names. And uh, this professor named Tim Z. Hernandez did some research and discovered the names and uh, created a new... Um, memorial at the place where they were put into a mass grave and it's, it's there now. Um, uh, yeah.
0: There's also one of the stories is, uh, Lewis banks, uh, a black man from Arkansas who aspired to be a chef, but wound up riding the rails, getting arrested and working on chain gangs. Was his experience different from white hobos?
1: Uh, well, uh, yes and no, uh, but probably more so with the with the blacks, they were sentenced to longer sentences. You know, a vagrancy sentence is usually a week, and they would keep them in for three or four or five months mm-hmm. at a time for vagrancy. Uh, as Lewis Banks puts it, it's free labor. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it was a way for communities to get free labor at a time, Uh, That they needed help in their communities So the sentencing was obscene Uh, There's quite a few uh, stories of hobos in um, We Live On There, I think 2 million people during the Depression Were riding the rails 5,000 women uh, were riding the rails looking for work And as another character describes uh, There's a difference between a hobo, a tramp, and a bum. Uh, a hobo is an itinerant worker who uh, is going from town to town looking for work. A tramp will work if you force him to, but a bum won't work at all. <laughs> as one of the characters says, as, as one of the characters in in, in the piece say. Well, Harry
0: um, O'Donnell, you're talking about, right?
1: That's right. His, which is written by one daughter. of our actresses. Yeah, it's the daughter, daughter of. So that came man, from the
0: company member.
1: Yes. And Harry O'Donnell, Mary's, uh, Mary Eileen's uh, father, was actually on this floor of the stock exchange in October 1929 when the everything went to hell. Uh, he was on the floor. He was a runner, a kid, a 16-year-old kid that would run stock trades back and forth across the, the floor. And... Uh, he witnessed it all collapse right in front of him and his, he grew up in uh, hell's kitchen. He was a tough kid. He he knew how to fight and he knew how to run fast to get away from trouble. And he went to survive. He went out on the rails and rode the rails for three years and wound up back in New York, went, got a, a job back on wall street eventually. And then when the war hit, he went down and enlisted in the army, went out and, was in the Battle of the Bulge, came back and raised a family in, in New York City. Uh,
0: a number of them uh, joined the Army after when World War II started, uh, Lewis Banks, another one. But um, Harry, the, the man we've been talking about, you, you said that hobos worked. He, he worked as a Gandhi dancer. Um, yes. You know, a lot of people don't know what a Gandhi dancer is.
1: I mean, it sounds pretty cool, but it? It, <laughs> but it's actually a, it's basically a rail worker, a person that would uh, build or maintain railroad track, and and as Marilyn says, uh, he was uh, he was uh, one, he was one of the guys that would wield those big um, hammers to to put it in, put the uh, the um, rails in. Yeah, Gandhi dancer it sounds very uh, sexy, but it's actually hard work. And you know a lot of the stories of of the hobos at the time. You know they had their little communities uh, called hobo jungles, uh, and they would share information, cigarettes, food. Uh, it was you know these roving communities. There was a certain trust amongst them, and as Lewis sense uh, Lewis Banks says it didn't really matter whether you were black or white. There wasn't everyone was poor, and everyone was trying to survive. And uh, another character, Ed Paulson, talks about. The bane of their existence. They actually, all three of them, talk about the bane of their existence was not only these railroad dicks that would they would shoot at them when they were on top of these trains. Um, you know, we have this romantic notion they were inside these mm-hmm. boxcars. No, the, they were people traveling on top of the trains for hundreds and hundreds of miles, and um, the, there were these railroad dicks that would uh, that would be in these yards, and when they passed through towns. These guys would be shooting at them, uh, not asking them to get off, but trying to kill them. So think about that. And then when they would get off there they, and they would set up these little hobo jungles, the, uh, the American Legion would come into town, would come into these jungles and beat the hell out of them. They would hmm. come with baseball bats and guns and knives and, you know, and try to kill them. So it wasn't, you know. It wasn't an easy life by any stretch of the imagination. There was talk about survival. You know, not only are you trying to get work and risking your life on these trains, but you're risking your life going to sleep at night. It, it, you know, it, it's it was uh, and this was happening all across the country. One of the characters talks about being beaten up by these guys. And even when he got a job and was working as a, a, a singer, uh, working for Upton Sinclair's campaign, in California, the American Legion used to come in and break up up to Sinclair's rallies and beat people up with with baseball bats
0: so they were so, the proud um,
1: boys of their time kind of and and by the way these were these were businessmen and property owners these were These people weren't hurting they just for some reason uh were getting their jollies out of bashing heads and um so there were those kinds of people out there. Uh, at the same time, there were people all over the country. There was actually hobo code uh, on your back door. If you, there was different lines that you could draw. Some lines meant don't come here. Some lines meant uh, there's food. Some lines meant there's food and clothing. Um, you know, there was a, a code that was very primitive uh, drawings that would tell hobos passing through whether it was a friendly house or not-friendly house, or whether they uh, could help them at all.
0: Another story you tell is that of Evelyn Finn, a seamstress who became a union organizer. Was she one of the first women to call attention to sexual harassment in the workplace?
1: Yeah, she talks about um, how the guys would insinuate invite her in the back room she said she was very attractive but you know she, well, she doesn't say that. she says i guess i was uh, i guess i was attractive but um it, it, but this was happening uh, across the board the, the she said there were some women that you know just in order to survive did it but she said i would never do it because how could i face my daughter how could i live with myself uh sexual harassment outright rape uh in the workplace was, was not uncommon at the time. And men using their positions of power and the, uh, the desperate hard times that were happening to, you know, to prey upon women was, was, wasn't uncommon. And so this was the first, this was the first thing that got, you know, her, her, um, indignation up and so she started organizing out of that she's you know first she started trying to uh go to the unions uh, to try to get them to do anything about it then she said it was run by men so they that wasn't going to happen so she started organizing within her own workplace so she she was a seamstress so she'd take a shop and she'd say girls you know just sit there don't do anything and they'd just talk and then the people get pissed off and they'd call them names uh, and uh, and uh, try to abuse them, and she said, okay, well, if you're going to treat us that way, we're going to go for a walk, and they would walk out. And it was this kind of resilience and strength uh, that eventually made the bosses understand that they couldn't get away with all of this stuff, and they had to treat these women with dignity. And that's one of the things that is throughout the word dignity, uh, with all the labor struggles um, we talk about the Flint strike as well. The idea that there, that these people were these workers were human beings and they deserved dignity was an uncommon concept at the time. Right. They just work uh, workers were considered chattel. They were considered uh, you know a, a commodity that could be easily gotten rid of. And uh, it wasn't until they started standing up for themselves and and really risking their Livelihoods with strikes, that things started to change, and then we talk about the Flint strike, which was a, a historically a very important strike that happened in Flint, Michigan. Uh, it was it was started on Christmas, and it was uh, worldwide. It went. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt showed her support for it. Eventually, uh, it was a monumental shift in the way that corporations thought about workers in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it's, it's really a real reminder uh, of, of how important the labor movement was in this country, uh, something also a reminder about how toothless a lot of our labor unions have gotten. Uh, I think it's starting to change. I think that's shifting. I think you're seeing uh, a real moment where workers have agency again. Uh, there's people that are refusing to work again. In the way that they were working before the pandemic, and uh, that's something that takes a lot of courage. Uh, I know a lot of uh, uh, people on the right will say, "Well, that's because you know the government's paying them," and it's not easy. Let, let me tell you, uh, I know a few people that are going through this struggle right now, and it's it's uh, it takes a lot of courage, and. Um, And basically what I I, I believe the the time in isolation has taught a lot of people is that there's more to life than the daily slog. Yes, we can all work, but we want to work being treated with dignity. It it feels good if you're treated well. When you're considered disposable, uh, you shouldn't be surprised. If you're an employer, if you consider that your employees are disposable, you shouldn't be surprised that they're refusing to work for you now. You shouldn't be surprised that they weren't faithful to you when you were able to open your business again. That's that shouldn't be a surprise. However, people that have worked through this and have you know taken on a little bit of risk themselves and have kept their employees on are sh- are, are are finding that those employees are there and loyal and. Ready to work again uh, at the Actors Gang when it all went down. You know, many theaters and particularly the larger organizations that are much more funded than ours furloughed their workers immediately, and uh, we kept everyone on. We didn't lay anybody off. Kept everyone on at, at full salary, and we kept them at uh, uh, we kept them with their health insurance as well. And it wasn't easy to do. It was a risk. But we made it through um, because ultimately, if you're going to run a business, you you have to understand that these are human beings that are working for you. If you go through hard times and you're able to make it through those hard times, those people will be there for you. So, again, I don't think people should be surprised when they're trying to reopen their shop and they dump their workers on the first chance they could get so that they could keep their own income up. Uh, don't be surprised those people aren't going to work for you.
0: You're listening to Leonard Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Tim Robbins. We're talking about We Live On, which is a uh, really interesting uh, approach to performance. Um, Actors do, uh, appearing on Zoom, speaking directly into the camera from their homes. I'm assuming as a director, it's kind of difficult to create a visually dynamic production with that kind of limitation. Um, it's kind of a, a hybrid, part theater, part film.
1: Part documentary. Uh, no these are real people.
0: And that's why you're um, using those black and white photos from uh, people like Dorothea Lang and Walker Evans. It really gives it that documentary feeling.
1: Yes, and also uh, at the end of each uh, piece, there's photos from now that remind us uh, how similar uh, the times are now. Um, yeah, it was visual dynamism. Uh, other than the frame that you can create, is is, is not the is not the um, the the not going to be your friend in this medium, and that was, of course, the big challenge. Uh, that's why we reduced it to a simplicity. I, I told all the actors, talk to the camera as if you're talking to one person in their living room. Um, it's that intimate. It's it's not a way that we're used to working. We are a very theatrical theater company. But at the core, the rules still applied. The rule of, of, of states of emotion, of truth, of sincerity, and of that theater is for an audience. Uh, we, in the Actress Gang, we have always acknowledged our audience. We never put up a fourth wall. So it was just a, a matter of adjusting into a much more intimate and personal uh, form. Uh, and it is storytelling, it's, it is personal, and it is in that way, it, without all the trappings of spectacle It really demands that the actors dig deeper and really understand and empathize with the stories that they're telling.
0: How can my listeners sign up to see the show? Are they all live performances or are some of them recording? We do shows
1: live um, at 7 o'clock Pacific time, so that would be 10 on the East Coast.
0: Hmm. That's until September Uh, 4th
1: that's Thursdays and Fridays at seven. So it's 10 and they're an hour and 20 minutes each. We usually do a little talk back afterwards mm-hmm. on Saturday. We do part one, two and three. We do part one at five, which would be eight Eastern Eastern time. Part two at six thirty, which would be nine thirty, and part three at 11. Uh, PM. And then it usually ends around, uh, midnight uh, uh, on the East Coast, 9.30 on, you know, 9.20 uh, on the West Coast. Uh, We also do a uh, rerun on Sunday mornings at nine, which would be noon on the East Coast. We do this uh, not only for the people on the East Coast, but we, as a matinee, but we also do that for people in Europe that want to hear it so that it's playing at a decent hour and not in the middle of the night. And
0: as I said and it's until September 4th. So after that will uh, reruns be available?
1: Yes, we will be providing a link after that so that um, and we're working on that right now. I believe we'll have it up the following week but there's something really special I and I want to encourage people to try to come to the live hmm. piece because it, it is it is pretty special. You won't You'll, you know, everyone, there's long monologues and people have learned them, you know, they're, they're, they've memorized them. So there's times when, you know, there's a little bit of slip and Hmm. I kind of personally like it when there's a little bit of imperfection and people, you can see that, you know, people are live and not (laughs) occasionally just a little bit on the tightrope. Um, But yes, after September 4th, we will be doing... um, We have uh, just about
0: two minutes left, maybe even a little less. We keep hearing about performance venues reopening. And now that more people are fully vaccinated, do you and the actors gang have plans to mount any in-person shows this year? Uh, Or uh, now that you've figured out how to do virtual performances, are you inspired to do more of them?
1: Well, we we have another virtual performance in the works right now. We've been working with puppets, oddly enough, and they're so uh, I don't know. There's something about puppets on Zoom that is quite stunning. It's quite, mm. it's it's really deeply
0: moving. Well, this is um, a way to bring live theater to people who don't live near a theater.
1: Yes, and also we're uh, we're making uh, free links available for old age homes uh, to you know to, to for people that can't even leave uh, you know people that are shut in so uh, that's going to be that's part of our uh, new outreach right now is to try to provide these stories of the depression to people that probably have a much more direct relationship with it but can't get in a car and travel but also um, we do have some live shows coming up we're not quite sure when we can do them again this new uh, variant and the idea that you know it still can be transmitted Because even if you have the vaccine, there's all these things we're still trying to figure out. We can't wait to open our space and uh, exist in a safe and and, uh, responsible way. But we have to really weigh a lot of new considerations right now.
0: Meanwhile, you can see we leave on which is available in three parts through the Actors Gang website, https theactorsgang.com slash. And my great thanks to Tim Robbins for having been on our show today. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Um, I'm sorry we couldn't get to what's happening with the prison project, but good luck with working that out as well.
1: Thank you, Leonard. We're back in the prisons.
0: Okay. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview, to live engineers Reggie Johnson and James Ursay, and uh, to Leonard Located Large executive producer Jesse Lent for all of the important work that they do throughout the week. You can access our archive at WBAI.org, and we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. You can also find links to our over 500 past shows at com. If you'd like to write to me, my my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. Before I go, I need to take a moment to ask you to support WBAI by going online to give2wbai.org to or by calling 212 212- 209 That's 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. because we need your help to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored on the air. So why not make that call now to ensure that this show and the station that brings it to you will be here in the years to come. And one great way to show your support for what we do on Lundered L'Opid at Large is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. They provide the station with a steady, stable source of support, something we need now more than ever. But however you choose to donate, what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this alternative to corporate radio live and well in New York City through their generosity again the number to call to make your tax deductible contribution 212-209-2950 or you can go online to give to wbai.org and please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate large and thank you very much. Well, we're off for the next couple of days, but we hope that you can join us for Tuesday's show when author and political strategist Gary Ginsburg will discuss his latest book, First Friends The Powerful, Unsung, and Unelected People Who Shaped Our Presidents. Have a great weekend.